You're listening to the We Lead Well podcast, where well-being matters. The show is brought to you in partnership with Transform Education Coaching, headteacherchat.com and the Teach Well Alliance. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the latest episode of the We Lead Well podcast. I'm Vicky Maguire, a coach working with teachers and leaders to help them to improve their well-being. On today's episode of the podcast, I'm really pleased to have Rachel Lofthouse. Rachel's a professor of teacher education in the Carnegie School of Education, and she's specifically interested in how teachers learn and how they put that learning into practice. And that is really interesting to me because I think we're at a a really important point in terms of CPD and more schools are starting to realise that they can't take a one-size-fits-all approach to CPD for their staff and that it has to be much more personalised and much more individualised. And one of the things that Rachel talks to us about in the interview today is how CPD can become much more unique to the individual. She talks about networking and group coaching, aspects of coaching and mentoring. She established the Research and Practice Centre Collective Ed and this is a coaching and mentoring hub If you want to access all of the research papers that have been written, they are all there for you and they put them all together in in a quarterly issue of um, a collection of all those papers. And there are some particularly useful and interesting papers to use to support the way that you implement CPD in your school. So that is really interesting. And Rachel tells us more about that in the interview. As school leaders, I think we're also beginning to realise that our practice needs to be more evidence informed and that we can use that to engage members of staff, we can use that to engage and fire up teachers to be interested in CPD because they can choose an aspect of their own practice that they would like to work on. And then we can build communities, coaching communities, in which teachers can explore their own practice and can work out what they need to do to improve their practice for themselves. And that creates the ownership that I've talked about in previous shows as well. The ownership, the trust that they are respected as professionals and that they're on a journey towards autonomy and mastery of their craft. I was really interested in Rachel because she contributed to Um, a a document that I use regularly called Coaching for Teaching and Learning, a Practical Guide for Schools, which I think I say in the interview is is like my Bible. And she's going to tell us more about that in the interview, but that's a really useful document as well. And you can pick that up on the internet. Anyway, here's the interview with Professor Rachel Lofthouse. Enjoy. Professor Rachel Lofthouse, welcome to the podcast. It's really great that you've chosen to come and have a conversation with us. How are you? 
I'm fine, thank you. Even though you can't, you, well, even though you've been out to do your shopping in a mad Sainsbury's. Um. <laughs> it was a little crazy, but knowing I only needed about six items certainly helped. With a port embargo, it's interesting. I wonder what the future holds with Brexit and coronavirus. We thought 2020 was bad, but uh, let's see Probably what 20... not the best time to look ahead, is it? Just... <laughs> Let's see what 2021 holds. Um, so can you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you've ended up doing the work that you do currently? Yes, um, so I'm, I am formerly a secondary school teacher, so you have to go back a long way in my life. <laughs> um, but in the 1990s, I taught um, in secondary schools in the northeast of England. Um, I'm not from the northeast, but I did my PGC there and stayed um, and uh, kind of have a life up there, although I now work in Leeds. So I, I am a former secondary teacher. I was head of department. Um, I was really fortunate to work in an area where there was quite a lively interest in teaching thinking skills um, and quite a considerable movement um, to generate teachers as experts of teaching thinking skills. So, you know, I'm I hold my colleagues at Newcastle University um, and Northumberland local authority where I used to work in really high esteem for having created in me a desire to work collaboratively with other teachers around classroom practice and a sense that teachers can be co-creators um, and that's a really important part of my history. Having been a secondary uh, school teacher I then moved into PGCE so I, I was the course leader for geography PGC at Newcastle University for a lot of years and whilst working at Newcastle University I moved through a number of roles like we all tend to do um, so that included being director of PGCE, director of master's programs, part-time particularly master's programs uh, at a time where we would have hundreds and hundreds of teachers um, every year doing master's provision um, and that was largely because the government at the time was generous in its funding to support teachers as, as students, master students. Um, and then I worked within a research centre at Newcastle University, the Centre for Learning and Teaching, um, learned to be a researcher amongst my colleagues there, uh, learned a lot about finding coherence um, across a range of research projects and disciplines um, and also acknowledging expertise that others hold. So it's a really important part of my academic career. And then in 2017, I moved to Leeds Beckett University um, because I've been appointed as Professor of Teacher Education. So three and a half years after that, I am currently sitting in a, a flat in Leeds. Um, <laughs> about to move, not move, but about to relocate for Christmas back to the Northeast. Um, and I run a research and practice centre called Collective Ed through Leeds Beckett University, as well as teaching on a number of programmes, but I have to concede that the amount of teaching I do is, is much less than it used to be. But the research and practice centre, Collective Ed, is the centre for mentoring, coaching and professional learning. And uh, it's it's there because that's what I'm interested in, but it's also there because it's hosting a really um, interesting, vital community of people who are as interested 
and as expert as I am in their own ways in those fields. So can you tell us a little bit more about the, the Research and Practice Centre Collective Ed that you've set up? Can you tell us exactly what you do with that and how it all works? Okay, so it's in lots of ways, it's not like a traditional university research centre. And in fact, on the occasion that we were asked by our uh, dean, our head of school, um, to to set up centres, we were new. There was a group of us. We were new professors. Uh, Leeds Beckett was making an investment in research activity and research posts. And one of the objectives for each professor in the School of Education was to establish a research centre and that centre needed to be related to our own interests, our own research interests and become a vehicle through which that could be uh, further developed um, and through which a community could be established. So at the meeting where that was introduced I said well clearly my research centre will need to be um, related to coaching and mentoring, professional learning, because that's what I do, that's what I'm interested in. Um, I said, but I'm also really keen that it's not named only as a research centre, but that we call it a research and practice centre. And we don't just tack practice on every now and again, but that we actually, you know, have that as, um, as, the, as a construct, if you like, a very genuine intent that the two are related together. So that's how Collective Ed began. Um, we are we're small in many ways we are we don't sit on a big research fund um, we have a, a small group of colleagues at Leeds Beckett University who, who share some interests so there's a kind of collective at Leeds Beckett um, but there's perhaps more substantially a collective beyond Leeds Beckett um, and we have um, you know we've made a really big deal out of connecting researchers and practitioners together from the different sectors in education where professional learning happens and needs to be deployed and particularly the type of professional learning which rests very much on dialogue so whether that's coaching mentoring lesson study um, those forms of professional learning are the things we're particularly interested in um, and it's been an opportunity to engage with a number of agencies and a number of uh, freelancers if you like in education uh, but also substantially to engage uh, people from across the span of the educator's career so you know from chief executives uh, down to NQTs um, from mentors who've worked perhaps just once or twice with a student teacher to teacher educators who've had 20 years of experience to people who are doing their doctorates in this area, to other people who are just reflecting, you know, kind of lightly and gently on their practice. We, we're, we're a place where we try and connect people together. And there's some evident outputs of that. So for example, we publish collective ed working papers. We just published issue 12. Um, and the working papers are deliberately um, a, a collection of contributions from across education sectors with people with different roles and responsibilities and, and slightly different angles and takes on coaching mentoring and professional learning um, so we publish those those are all open access and we also have a network of fellows who meet quite regularly um, and who, who are actively 
sharing practice and ideas and evidence from practice and who, who spin off and do all sorts of interesting things because they've met through collective ed. It is, this throws up so many different questions that I want to ask you. So um, where should I start? I think it's brilliant that you're focusing there on teachers at so many different points in their career because I think the link between universities and research and schools it tends to be focused so much on when you're doing your ITT you you you're part of that because obviously you, you're training with a with a university and then as you get into your teaching career that that goes doesn't it and there's there aren't the same or there weren't for me I mean I trained in 1997 there weren't the same links so being providing those links I think is is particularly important in terms of CPD for for teachers so how how do you plan on improving those links do you see it as really important that um schools and research and um, universities are, are linked together um, yes, I do. And I think it's also worth noting that uh, more than 50% of new entrants into the profession haven't come through uh, directly through university. No, I suppose they've not now, have they? Because no, it's direct when yeah. we, we trained. Um, however, you know, lots of non-university provision um, does draw heavily on research and helps to create that understanding of research. But I, I it is a real, it's a real passion of mine and I don't have easy answers and I'm not trying to suggest in any way that Collective Ed uh, will do what other organisations do. So, you know, there are a number of really key national organisations which have the expressed intent of bringing uh, practice and research together in education. They do it in, in many different ways and there's a lot of criticism of um, some of the approaches that are used but what we are doing at Collective Ed I think is finding a really genuine and important focus which is teacher learning and acknowledging that teachers at each stage of their career need to continue learning and that learning the process of learning can be enhanced if we have an understanding of how teachers learn and if we create more opportunities for a wide range of teacher learning. So, um, you know, recognizing that, you know, it's not, it's not saying some teachers learn best when they're in a formal lecture, some te teachers learn best when they're listening to a podcast, some teachers learn best when, you know, they're, they're given access to a, a peer reviewed journal. Actually, the key thing here is that learning is a really complicated ecology and probably most of us need a real mix of experiences and opportunities to process and, and, and talk about and reframe our learning with each other in order for in order for us to learn. So I think that the key thing for me is that we learn in a space which allows us to expand our repertoire whether whatever role we have, we have, we need a rich repertoire as professionals in order to enact that role really well. And the repertoire gives us the capacity to make critical decisions 
that are right for the circumstances that we find ourselves in. And not just in theory, but in reality. It's not just, well, I think I know what I ought to do, but I don't know how to get there. But actually the repertoire allows us to think, I know what might work here. I know what work is worth trying. And I have the confidence and the skills and the knowledge to have a go at that. Whether we're talking about, you know, um, managing um, a, a situation where um, you know you're challenged in terms of ch children's behavior whether you're talking about grappling with the demands of a new curriculum or a new assessment system you know the wider your repertoire is the more likely it is that you can face that challenge successfully so i think a lot of this is about acknowledging what it is that teachers can really benefit from and i genuinely think that that uh, width and depth of repertoire is the key and the same applies if you are a leader or if you are a governor or if you're a teacher educator or if a significant amount of your job is spent mentoring others you need a repertoire to be a really good mentor um, so for me you can't get that repertoire um, from only engaging in a singular fashion or in a linear fashion assuming that knowledge is just accrued over time there's always this uh, need to to pause, to listen, to talk, uh, to reframe, to reflect on what you're doing in practice, have other people reflect on what they're doing in practice, and to be able to make connections, because nothing about what we do in education is simple. So we have to put ourselves in a place which can be uncomfortable, but which actually offers us opportunities to to make useful connections between people or between theory and practice or between leaders and teachers or between, you know, whatever the connections are, those connections can be very fertile. So that's what we will continue to aim to do. And in lots of ways, it seems quite ad hoc. It seems a bit, it's not, it's, it's not straightforward, but as, as opportunities arise, we will try and exploit them. I'll give you one example, a concrete example, and then I'll stop. So a concrete example was having generated this um, network of teaching uh, collective ed fellows, having got quite a lot of working papers, some of which were written by collective ed fellows, having got a motivation amongst fellows to meet with each other and share and talk about practice. And then having got this much wider network of interested potential participants, we decided this year that we would create a series of CPD activities, which we called three R's, where a fellow is able to talk in more detail about a paper they've already contributed to another fellow who has read that paper in depth and, and is ready to ask some really incisive and insightful questions with an audience of other fellows and wider than that who then can engage in conversation around that theme so that's a really good example if you like of having multiple ways of accessing information and engaging with the discussion um, and being able to offer that online because everything's now online has been a really productive thing to be able to do this year it's very basic but when when i'd done my um PGCE and was doing my NQT year um, I was involved in it was a free um, you could do it was 
counted towards a master's if you wanted it to but it was one year after i'd done my um well during my nqt year and i was looking at um, cpd and I, I remember doing a survey and one of the things that came out top in the survey in terms of the cpd that staff preferred was professional discussion and i think because it gives you that time to talk things over and to and to to have a space in which you can you can I, th I think process your ideas and think about things um, mm. more deeply. And it, it sounds like a lot of the work that you do is about, you know, providing that element of professional discussion um, in terms of CPD. And one of those ways is through coaching and mentoring, isn't it? And um, I just wonder if you can tell us a little bit about the the work that you've done on coaching. I. <laughs> I've got um, the coaching for teaching and learning, a practical guide for schools, which is like my Bible when I'm doing coaching in schools. It's it's there. It's so well thumbed. It's highlighted. It's got all notes on it. Um, but I know you've done so much work in that um, in that arena. So can you tell us a little bit about the the work that you do with coaching in schools? Before we find out more about the work that Rachel does in schools with regard to coaching, I'd like to just tell you a little bit about our partner, HeadTeacherChat.com. HeadTeacherChat discusses lots of topics, from how to support pupils with learning, how to support parents, and the many issues that come with leading a school. The aim of HeadTeacherChat is to support headteachers and school leaders who are in a challenging and often lonely role. They do this by offering lots of information for schools to tap into. For example, they have lots of fantastic education companies on their database for leaders to discover, as well as leadership templates to download. They've written product reviews for leaders who are looking for products for their school. And this year, they've even launched the very first school leader planner, especially designed to help leaders to be productive and organised. If you'd like to hear more about Head Teacher Chat, you can find them on their website at www.headteacherchat.com. Head Teacher Chat. It's what head teachers are talking about. Now let's get back to the interview. Yes, I can. Um, so that original guide that you're talking about is, oh goodness, I can't remember whether it, whether it was 2010 or 2012 it was published, but it was on the back of um, a project, quite a large research project that, that looked at how coaching of teachers by teachers was emerging in secondary schools in England and how we could better understand if you like the quality characteristics of it to help coaches who were teachers coaching teachers to coach in a way that had greatest impact so that was a that was the first formal research on coaching that I was involved with and it was at Newcastle University it came on the back of a number of more informal um, research endeavors, if you like. So there was a network of teachers working as coaches um, in the northeast of England, and myself and my colleague David Leet engaged with them partly through our master's programs, partly through um, our more general partnership work with schools. And we started to develop an understanding of what their practice was characterized by and, and how it might or might be, might not be. Um, if you like, levered or constrained. So um, that was a, a, an interesting piece of work. And it's really good to know that the, that guide 
still has currency, partly to be fair, because it was written in a real hurry at the end of the project when we were meeting a deadline. But I think what the reason why it's worked so well, despite being written in a hurry, is because it was based on such sound evidence. So by the time we needed to write it, it was relatively easy to do. It came from a very well um, participated in project. And what I mean by that is that the people we were working with as research subjects were very much engaged with as research participants. So there was a kind of a, a lot of learning that we did from them that wasn't just based on a single um, collection of data about them. So I think that the writing of it came relatively easily and I'm glad it is still useful. Um, since then, I've done a number of pieces of work around coaching. So one of the things, for example, that I was interested in was an opportunity that arose when uh, some speech and language therapists who I'd never met, but had come across me, I think on, no, they, they, they come across me from that same book, actually that same booklet. And they contacted me out of the blue and just said, you don't know us. Um, but we're speech and language therapists. We've, we've um, left the employment of the, um, if you like, the formal sector, public sector. We're working as freelancers. And what we're particularly interested in doing is developing some practice with teachers and school leaders um, to help promote principles of good communication in primary and early years pedagogy in contexts where um, the majority of a school population is living um, in relatively sort of strapped circumstances and, and the majority is also um, using English as an additional language um, in both school and at home. And they were really interested in developing a model where their professional expertise could be usefully deployed by teachers but also where they could learn more from teachers about classroom pedagogy and dialogue um, because it was such a central point of children's lives and use of communication that as speech and language therapists they felt they could do with learning more so it was a really interesting opportunity to develop an understanding of coaching practices that could actually bring expertise from two different professional domains together in a very um, real and challenging practice context. Um, so that was a nice piece of work looking at, you know, what does it take to develop coaching practices when you are essentially trying to create conversations from two knowledge bases um, and where you perhaps are contradicting some of the theory about coaching, which is that a coach's expertise is in coaching rather than in anything substantive around practical knowledge, yeah. which your practitioners who are working with the coaches can draw upon. So it was a really interesting opportunity to challenge myself and to, uh, to, to help develop a model and help to evaluate and understand a model of coaching. So that's an example. Uh, I don't think anybody else has done actually anything similar to that. And, and more recently, um, another example would be some coaching that um, was deliberately used with school leaders. And we were invited to evaluate a project funded by the National Education Union 
um, where they um, provided coaching across a full school year for head teachers who wanted to be coached and who um, and were able therefore to be coached by um, coaches from integrity coaching so Viv Grant and her coach associates and we were able to um, follow that year and gather evidence about the experiences of being coached throughout the year but also the experiences that coaches had of working with school leaders throughout the year to try and make sense of that as an area of practice as well. I'm assuming that the outcomes for the leaders who were involved in that coaching were what you expected and had made a difference to the, to the school leaders. Um, it was certainly the case that the coaches, sorry, the coaches, the head teachers who we um, talked to both through what well, we use questionnaires, interviews and focus groups throughout the year, reported very positively about the impact of being coached. Each of them had a different, slightly different perspective because each of them had gone into the experience with a different set of expectations and also being in a different circumstance. So there was no um, criteria for accessing coaching about whether you you you've got to be struggling or you've got to be new as a head teacher or you've got you know that it was literally just an offer to the members of that union who were head teachers that if they wanted to access free coaching for the year it they they could apply they all had their own stories and it was interesting when you gather information through questionnaires and interviews you're listening if you like you're making sense of each individual story but then when you bring people together in a focus group you start to find those links a little bit more but it was interesting that there were some really common themes and that was a very clear association that the head teachers were making between personal well-being and their professional capacity to do the job and then their ability to do the job being a way to develop capacity in their team um, and that therefore whilst at the beginning often they felt that coaching was something which was a bit of an indulgence or a bit of a luxury or a bit selfish almost self-centered that actually towards the end of the year they were able to cite really interesting examples of how their new perspectives or their heightened confidence or their greater sense of well-being was having very tangible effects on the ways that they worked in their professional spheres, which were then having tangible effects on others. Now, whether that was children, parents, colleagues in the senior leadership team, governors, teachers, you know, houses. <laughs> but absolutely that sense of finding themselves again as a whole person yeah. is really critical. It's, um, in, it's interesting that because um you talk about the link between personal well-being and your capacity to do the job um i mean that's that's part of sort of my how i've ended up wanting to become a coach full-time and do what i'm doing now because i struggled with that when i separated from my husband listeners will know this because i i go on about it all the time oh it's like my epiphany moment where i just couldn't manage both things at the same time um and i, I find that really interesting i wonder if you did um did you do any interviews with people who worked with those leaders and to find out whether they perceived that the leaders had had 
changed? No, we didn't. And that's the research gap. And the, the, the basic reason why we didn't do that was because we didn't have, um, it was a very, um, it wasn't funded enough yeah. to give that, you know, to, to add that extra time. But what we did do, and it's not the same at, at all, but what we did do was we, we did a series of interviews with the coaches. And of course, what you would expect is that coaches, if asked about coaching, are going to report favorably. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is the best thing since sliced bread. But we, uh, uh, but to be fair, we we kind of didn't ask those questions because, you know, it's you don't want to put people in a situation where they feel as if they're being awfully self-congratulatory about their practice. But what we asked them uh, was much more about what they'd learned. Well, first of all, how they how they become coaches, and that was really interesting because you you generally get this sense that. They must have all got the set, exactly the same set of coaching qualifications or the same professional backgrounds. And that certainly wasn't the case, among, the case amongst this group. But that actually, having been coaches, they were able to detect and learn from and make use of what they saw as real patterns and trends of working with school leaders so that their expertise as coaches really grew significantly over time uh, because they were able to tune in very quickly to what the school leaders were saying her teachers were saying and they were able to respond in ways which could be kind of both empathetic but also empowering and and what's interesting is no research method is perfect but asking the coaches and the director of the coaching program what was the intention of the provision across the year and then asking the head teachers what they'd gained from it and only at the at that point being really explicit with the head teachers about the relationship between what the coaches intended and expected the outcomes to be and what they said for themselves the outcomes were I mean, clearly they were in a program and they were, if you like, they'd been briefed about what to expect from coaching, how to engage with it. But they, there was such a strong alignment between what the coaches and, and what the head teachers were able to say were the experiences and outcomes that it was really surprising. And it was also um, genuinely interesting to hear about how the head teachers privileged coaching in their year so they had this offer for a whole year it, it essentially it was one two-hour coaching session every half term in face-to-face -face coaching um, and so that's six across the year with some phone calls in between if they wanted to catch up um, but not not a significant number um, and it's very easy i think for school leaders to have a diary which just looks completely busy on a Monday and becomes more and more chaotic as the school week goes on. And for that school leader to have to decide which things are going to be delayed or which things are going to have to be dropped. And what we were being told by all of them was that they learned very quickly never to drop the coaching. If the coaching was in the diary, they realized how important it would be, even when their diary was overflowing. So yeah. they they learned that it was a really important feature of their work 
that didn't take up so much time that it became obtrusive, but actually was very generative in terms of what it gave them back. So that's a, the reason I asked that question is because when I've done coaching with um, leaders in schools, I, I've I've had just comments from the people that they work with um, a couple of times to say what an impact it's had and how different they've been at work and like the changes that it's made to them. So, you know, I'm absolutely certain that if you had done, if that had been an element, you would probably have got very positive feedback from the, the colleagues of those, those leaders. It sort of leads me into one of the questions that I'd, I'd thought about before we started talking and I think often when teachers become they become leaders and then they become senior leaders and I think as they become senior leaders they probably engage uh, less with CPD at my experience as a deputy head was that I had very little training in actual leadership I, I didn't have a mentor I didn't have a coach um, and I feel like I was I struggled a bit at times because I didn't have the the professional development to go alongside my own leadership journey, so to speak. Um, and I think CPD that includes coaching and mentoring for leaders is crucial in my opinion. How do you think we can provide better CPD opportunities for SLT? Because I know there's NPQ, ML and SL um, and I, I do online tutoring for NPQ, SL and I think whilst it's good in lots of respects it's missing a lot of elements that i believe are, are quite crucial to developing senior leaders so what's your what's what's your take on that how do you think we can provide better cpd for school leaders um i think there's something here about um providing them with opportunities to really consider the leadership stance and and what i mean by that is that you know becoming a senior leader except in in those schools and colleges where recruitment to any role is extraordinarily difficult and you're just really pleased if you've got somebody yeah. who's willing to have a go you know and that's not to say that those people who are willing to have a go are inherently not the right people but there are some organizations where you just think gosh you're you you know you're lucky to have anybody because it's so such a, a difficult um yeah it's a difficult landscape that you're in so um no sorry i'll go back to where i was so the for most people becoming a leader and senior leader is framed at the beginning by competition so you have to you have to um, elevate yourself in your head to that role in order to write the application in order to sit and give a credible interview you have to try and persuade a panel that you are better than the three or four other people who are being interviewed that you've got more um you know you've got the right skills for the job and that they'd be completely foolish to overlook you and i know i mean i haven't gone for lots of interviews in my life but the few i have gone for you're, you're always treading that fine line of trying to be really honest and have integrity and truth behind what you say but also 
project yourself as somebody who yeah they need to be, and than the person they interviewed five minutes ago. There's an element of when you when you're sitting alongside you, the other candidates that you're eyeing up the competition, and you like as the day goes on, you're trying to work out what these people are like and get snippets of their experience and their you know what they're going to contribute on that day. It's really interesting that yeah. So I th- and I think that journey for a lot of people therefore is one about. Um, singularity so i am the right person for this job not them you know uh, my views matter not theirs my skills are the ones you want not theirs and i don't mean people are deliberately saying that out loud but they're almost um forced into that stance in order to acquire those jobs and the further you go up the chain the more i think you have to behave like that in order to end up there now that's Great if it gets the right people in the jobs, which it probably does most of the time. But it also means that you start your leadership journey on this basis of um, I'm, I'm slightly better than the rest of you. I'm more ambitious than you or I had um, I had more adequate skills than you did. And actually, probably the first thing you need to do as a leader is, is shed quite a lot of that, because it's easy for that to fuel your um, the way that you interact with others. It's easy for that. In a way, you, you almost have to put that in some situations. I think people feel obliged to maintain that stance um, because, you know, that we're, we're very bad at judging each other in education. We're very, we're very bad at kind of, you know, pulling each other down and we shouldn't be. So there's a sense that, you know, we actually need to crack some of the leadership stance in order to let people become more vulnerable again in order to learn to be a leader very few people are born leaders i don't i think i mean i just think you but you have to crack that you have to you have to then become more vulnerable so a really good example um of how you crack that I, i think is is by creating group group coaching situations where you bring people together in a space which is um you know, deliberately um, safe, if you can create something that's deliberately safe, but where over time, people are able to build up enough of a relationship with each other to start to be a little bit more honest with each other about actually who they are, how they approach the job, what their needs are, what their vulnerabilities are, what the challenges are. You know, it's so it's so interesting. And the reason that I'm laughing and I apologise for interrupting you but in my last post um and the post the previous post um i was i I was part of a cpd group with the local authority um where we we all got together and we we had a there was they had a really good uh, group of like local authority cpd and one of the things that i really pushed at every meeting that i went to was I felt like head teachers that they have groups where they can get together. I don't think it, it's always the atmosphere and the ethos of it is always like you describe there. I think sometimes those sort of head teacher boards and, and meetings, they're not always like that, but there is a network and there's a connection. Whereas I always think, or where I worked, I was thought for assistant head teachers and deputy head teachers, 
that was missing. There was always a conference for, for the head teachers. And I, and I really tried to push, let's have something for assistant head teachers and let's have something for deputy heads. Somewhere that I can go as a deputy and talk to other deputy heads about their role, about what they're doing, about the challenges that they face, and so that we can share our practice and like you're saying, be vulnerable and say, I had an issue, I didn't know what to do with it, or this is how I feel. And I was always knocked back. I was always told, no, we don't have the capacity, we can't do it, it's not possible. And I, I'm so glad that you've said that because I felt like sometimes I was a lone voice saying, this is what deputy heads need, this is what assistant heads need. And it's a bit more of a development of that professional discussion, isn't it? The, the idea that by talking to each other, we can learn an awful lot we're not in silos and, and we need much more sharing and much more yeah. work and connection and I think it's a really interesting um it's almost a dichotomy so if we're not in silos because we've brought assistant heads together from different settings um then you could argue but it's a silo of assistant head teachers yeah um <laughs> And, but on the other hand, as peers, um, they have the capacity to be, um, uh, well, to be a valuable peer group because the, the, some of the challenges and dilemmas they're facing will be common and they'll get a sympathetic ear, won't they, from each other? Yeah. Um, well, hopefully they will. Um, so I think it is important to bring peers together. I also think it's important to say, some of the best learning that an assistant head teacher might gain is when they're in a group with colleagues potentially and probably from outside of their own setting who who have different roles and responsibilities so if you have a discussion group which has um, a head teacher a deputy head teacher a senko uh, some early career teachers potentially some people from different sectors so primary and secondary for example i know there are others potentially people from an international community um, then you're if you like the the learning is a little bit less uh, it can't be designed because you've got a much more um, diverse group of people but it may be easier as an assistant head teacher to learn something when you're in an informal conversation or listening to an informal conversation between a head teacher and a senko from different settings and you're just there able to listen in and process and reflect how does that relate to the work i do that might actually be an easier place to learn than one where everybody at that particular time has a very similar role i think both play their part yeah but i'm genuinely um more and more convinced that we need to see ourselves as educators with a multiple um knowledge base with multiple roles and responsibilities and that what we tend to think of us uh, ourselves as is we, we need an identity but if we too strongly associate with an identity group then we're missing opportunities to learn from others you, you need a, you need a mixture don't you of, of different types of I don't know, groups or networks that you might be involved in. In terms of CPD, um, one of the things that we've talked about is how um, people being invested in developing their own practice um, and becoming autonomous and um, 
choosing their own professional development path, so to speak, can support well-being in schools. Um, and it, it's 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 not easily solved, is it? The the dilemma that we've got with CPD at the minute is that in a lot of places, it's a one size fits all CPD model, or some schools have tried to include some element of choice in it by creating menus and things like that. But it's there's still that element that someone goes somewhere to learn something and then they take something away from it and it's expected that they go and just try that out or have a go and that they've learned something from attending those sessions. What's your opinion on the way that CPD generally is? I know it's not in every school. Um, the way that CPD works at the moment and what we need to do to improve CPD practices so that we can retain our best staff because we're losing, we're hemorrhaging teachers, we're, you know, good teachers and experienced teachers um, and we need to do something to keep them. So what's your, what's your view on how CPD practices can be improved? That is such a big question, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's huge. <laughs> um, I think, I, I mean, I, I genuinely think at the moment, if you walked into five schools, you'd find quite different models of CPD. And then if you went into five department offices in each of those schools, you'd find differences again. Um, because I think in the end, um, there's, there's the there's the offer there's a formal offer made by schools then there's the um, engagement with that offer and then there's all of the spin-offs um, and I think what you can't and shouldn't try to do is control the spin-offs or the um, you we need a really um, rich and lively landscape of CPD but what you've got to make sure is that people are not relying on the spin-offs and that the offer is therefore withdrawn and i haven't explained that terribly well but you know we've got a lot more teachers who are engaging in cpd that they've decided to engage with on a saturday for example so they go yeah. to a conference they go online they listen to podcasts they do all that stuff and, and it's all undoubtedly um part of this rich and valuable cpd landscape but i think one of the real risks is that if that um, that as teachers um, report back the benefits of that, that the responsibility for offering really coherent, um, really inclusive, really developmental CPD from the institution starts to wane, particularly when budgets are threatened, because and they really are. So there's so part of this is about acknowledging that you do need a formal offer, you do need an entitlement. Um, you need that to not be a one size fits all because the last thing that school staff are is one size. <laughs> they don't fit that. Um, but you also need to not squash the enthusiasm that people have for the more informal forms of CPD. Um, I, I don't, I genuinely don't know the answer other than, if you like, quite grand, almost generalizations. And one of them is to be pretty clear what CPD is about and for, and to then and, and set yourself some pretty high ideals. And one of them is that it's not just about can you take something away tomorrow to put into practice. If you can take something away tomorrow to put it into practice, 
that's fabulous. But it doesn't mean you're going to put it into practice in a week or a month or a year. It, it could quite easily be a, a very uh, flimsy thing that just drifts away and you might, you know, that doesn't have any legacy. But that actually, um, it, it's about raising the ambition of the profession. For me, that's what CPD is. It's about saying, um, let's not uh, limit ourselves and our imagination about what's possible and what we can do. Let's not be so entirely fanciful that we lose sight of what the reality is in these settings. So we do have to keep grounded. We do have to recognize, um, if you like, the authentic characteristics of the jobs that we're trying to do here. But also let's not let ourselves be boxed in um, to following a set of protocols and procedures that somebody has deemed to be effective, but that often that person who's deemed them to be effective has not taught in a school anything like yours, has not led a school anything like yours, has not lived your life, is not you. And therefore, you need not to be boxed in by that thing. That, that thing. You need to have an ambition for yourself and for the profession, which is wider and a bit wilder than perhaps what a lot of CPD offers. Because you know, teachers give and school leaders just give so much time, energy and effort to everybody else. And actually they need to be as ambitious for themselves as they try to be for the people that they teach and that they lead. So, and that's about, a, that's about acknowledging the capacity of educators to do work, which is truly phenomenal. And I think that's a really profound statement and it would <laughs> I was going to ask another question but I, I, I want to leave that there because my question just would just bring that back down and, and I, I think that high ideal that that you've just expressed there is something that if if all school leaders had that, I think we we might be in quite a different place in education. I think so, and I think it's one of the true lessons of the pandemic as well, that we have this amazing capacity to be transformative in society, and that we mustn't lose sight of that when we yeah, when we deal with the everyday grind. Yeah. Let's let's leave it there. The, uh, with the trans, trans the transformation that we could be a part of as leaders in education. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, thank you for taking the time to to share your ideas with us. I think there have been some quite inspirational um, parts to our conversation there. So I'm I'm really happy that you. That you chose to come on the show if people want to get in touch with you or they want to, to um share some of the work that you've that you've referred to where can they find um collective ed and okay so the easiest thing to do is just google collective ed and it only has one e in the middle um so collective uh, collective ed so add collective ed in and add leads into google search and you'll get us if I give you a whole website address, you'll lose track. Okay. But Google leads collective ed, you'll find us. We are um, 
on Twitter at CollectiveEd1. Um, so that's an easy place to find us. Um, and um, you can always track me down at Leeds Beckett University. And you know my email is there. It's not private or secret. So if anybody ever wants to contact me, then they're more than welcome to. Brilliant. Rachel, thank you so much. And I hope we can speak to each other again because I've got so many questions <laughs> that, that have arisen from, from our discussion. So that would be great. Thank you. I want to say thank you to Rachel for doing that interview with us today. One of the main things that I'm taking from it is the idea that CPD needs to be more collaborative, that we need to start working together but as individuals and that seems like a bit of a contradiction but I think what I mean is that we need to be able to identify where we want to improve ourselves and that's teachers and leaders but that we need to be able to do that alongside other teachers and leaders so that we're able to share our ideas talk about our ideas and be like Rachel says be co creators so that we can become more experienced we can extend our repertoires and understand like Rachel said that you know learning is not it's not singular or linear it's much more complex and complicated than that and as leaders we have to start to try to have an understanding of that and how teachers learn best and if we can do that and start to implement that in our schools and underpin that with evidence-informed practice then I think we'll be making some real progress. Thank you for listening that's the end of this episode. I hope you've been enjoying listening to the podcast. If you have, you can follow the show on Podbean. And if you wouldn't mind just popping onto iTunes and giving us a five-star review, that would be amazing. As always, if you would like to have a chat with me about coaching, how I could help you as an individual or in your school, just pop onto my website at www.transformeducationcoach.com. Take care of yourself. Take care of your staff and lead well. This episode of the We Lead Well podcast was brought to you in partnership with Transform Education Coaching, HedgeTeacherChat.com and the Teach Well Alliance.